I want to say a word before Eric comes. Many of you know Eric Futrell. He's a member of our church, uh, and uh, last year, I think or so, a couple of years maybe now, Eric uh, uh, surrendered to God's call, moved to Southwestern, go to Southwestern Seminary over in Dallas-Fort Worth area, and, and uh, so he's just a homeboy to us. That's probably not a good thing to say, but he is. And, uh, but anyway, Eric, we're glad you're here, and uh, we, I know you have a word for us tonight. So. Here it's such an honor and a privilege, um, and it's it's great to see all of you again. I've missed every single one of you, and it's just been such a. I have great friends out there, but you know, y'all are y'all. So, what can we say about that? But I want you to join me as we go together to God and just uh, ask a wor- ask a request of Him. Lord, we come to you. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for sharing uh, your Word with us and teaching us how we ought to live. Lord, we pray that you will open the hearts and minds of all of us here that we might understand what you have to say to us. So, Lord, just work in the word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, around the world, there's a relevant message for today because Justin preached a message this morning about spiritual complacency, about getting into a comfort zone. And it's such a relevant message, and I'm going to touch upon some of that, too. So somebody here must need to hear that. Maybe it's me. I don't know. But around the world today, Christians are being persecuted. They're suffering for their faith. In Iran, there's a guy by the name of uh, Yusef Nadarkhani, pastor out there. He came to Christ as a young man. um, And he came to be a leader of a group of house churches. He was arrested back in 2009. And he has been sentenced to death because he will not recant his faith. He will not give up. Now, the devil is at work in the world, and overseas he is openly hostile to Christianity, to faith in Christ. But we here in America are also under attack, and it not, may not be as openly hostile or violent, but he uses a different tactic with us. In, in our day, in our culture, he uses the tactic of deception. If he can twist what we believe, then we're not active and useful for the kingdom of God. And Peter in his second letter, it's his last letter, he wrote this knowing he was going to die. He says that at the end of chapter 1. He knows he's about to die. And so he has a good word to share. And so I'll be reading from verses 1 through 11. Follow me along if you would. Uh, But our main text is from verses 3 through 11. So would you join me? Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is blind, 
short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. It's a bit long, but don't worry. A lot of good stuff in there. Peter wrote this letter, like I said, to encourage people to not be deceived. At the end of his chapter, at the end of his letter, at the end of chapter 3, in verses 17 and 18, he says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, he warned you, knowing you know this is going to come, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And so I've entitled this sermon, if you will, Growing in the Knowing. It's a cutesy little title, but it's true. Justin spoke about, we're, we're not called to a, a passive relationship with Christ. We're not called to sit in our lazy chairs. We're called to live out a faith, a vibrant, living faith. And the way we do that is in a vibrant, living relationship with Christ. So to kind of enumerate these points, to get to the bottom of this passage, I've got three points today. And they all start with the letter E. My name is Eric. Go figure. We are empowered to grow. We are expected to grow. And we are encouraged to grow. So first of all, some people say, well, spiritual growth, that's not for me. I like being in my lazy chair. It's comfortable. I have the, uh, I have the board on a broomstick to change the TV. I love that illustration. It's awesome. But the thing is, is I want you to know that God has given you the ability to grow spiritually, to engage in this. And you find this in verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, we sang about the power of God to save just a few minutes ago. We hear the sound of a really big boom of thunder. And that's just an inkling of the power of God. Because when I think of the power of God, I picture Moses in Exodus where he says, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see me face to face. You will die. Or I think of Micah chapter 1 where the prophet says this, that he, sees, he saw God coming down from his mountain and the mountains melted before him. The power of God who spoke creation into existence. Merely speaking it. The power of God on the cross, the resurrection of the dead, and saving you from eternal torment and hell. God has the power, and he not only saves you, he gives you the power to grow up spiritually. And now, the thing is, is how do we do this? Now, salvation is nothing of ourselves. We merely have to receive Christ. But that is the most important, the very first step. We see that in the next part of verse 3. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This true knowledge here, there's two words for knowledge in Greek. I'm not going to go through all that, I'm not going to say it. But this, I, this carries the idea of coming to know someone for who they really are. It's recognition. It's not merely acknowledging something in your head. It's knowing something, experiencing that knowledge for yourself. And so the idea here is that, first of all, you have to know Christ. You have to know him. If you don't get that, if you don't have that personal knowledge of him, well, none of, this, none of the rest of the stuff is going to come out right because that's the very first important step. That's how we are empowered to grow. It's how we are saved, but for us, it's how we are empowered to grow. Now, he calls us by his own glory and excellence. 
I mentioned God's glory earlier. It's an awesome thing. Isaiah, when he saw his vision of God, and he wrote it in chapter 6, he sees God, he says, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, of a people of unclean lips. He recognizes his own worthlessness next to God. God is glory. He is glorious. And he's also excellent. And the word here has the idea of something of the utmost quality of character. Someone who is beyond reproach. And I don't mean you can't just accuse them. It's well beyond even that. Because God has the best integrity of character. And it's by these things he calls us into a relationship with himself. He empowers us to live life, life and godliness. Godliness is the idea of living a life that is pleasing to God. Now, Hebrews chapter 11, the author writes that without faith it's impossible to please God. The first step is always faith. Once you have faith, you can then live a life pleasing to God, and he enables us to do so. On our own, we can do nothing that is good enough in God's eyes. Everything, all the goodness that we can do is filthy rags to him, according to Isaiah. Nothing that we do pleases him without faith. But once we come into relationship with him, he empowers us to live a life that is pleasing to him. And speaking of his own glory and excellence, that by which he calls us, that which he calls us to, he then says this in verse 4. For by these, his glory, his excellence, his own very nature and his character... He has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Now, God does not lie. He is of the utmost character. Think of all the good character qualities that you know. They're honest, they keep their word, you know, they do good things. You can trust them. Because God is the utmost of character, because he is excellent, you can trust that what he says is going to happen. Now, promises here. One, some people think this is talking about the promise of salvation to all those who believe. If you believe, you're saved. Possible. Some people think this is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. Yeah. Within the context of 2 Peter, he mentions in chapter 3 that some in the last day are going to come and they're going to be preaching a slightly different gospel. They're going to be mocking what we believe. He mentions these, all these false prophets in chapter 2. And they're character qualities are the exact opposite of what we're going to be looking at today. But he, he says there are come mockers who are going to say, where's the promise of his coming? Didn't Jesus say he was coming back? It's been 2,000 years. He ain't come back yet. What's the holdup? But the thing is, is Peter has an answer for that in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The love of God is such an awesome thing that he is patiently waiting for people to come to him. He has called out to them. He is waiting for them. And as such, he has promised he's coming back someday. He's promised salvation. He's promised the Holy Spirit will indwell us. And that gets to this next part here in verse 4. By these promises, he says, so that with the result that, for the reason, purpose that, By them, these promises, you may become participators, partakers of the divine nature. Now, there's a lot of argument in theological circles over exactly what this means. Well, I'll tell you what I think it means. The Holy Spirit indwells you. When you you accept Jesus Christ, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you become in God. 
God becomes in you. You can see this throughout the scriptures in the New Testament. And as such, he says, you know what? I'm going to share some of my nature with you. I'm going to live within you. I'm going to make you a new creation, a new person, a new man, a new woman. I'm going to make it so that you can live a life that is pleasing to me. And this is one reason, I, you know, there's other scriptures, but this is one reason I believe you can't lose your salvation. You become a participator, a partaker of the very nature of God. He who is excellent, who has the utmost character, he shares that with you so that you can live. He shares his power with you so that you can please him. And in doing so, he says, continuing the verse, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We just celebrated Independence Day. You know, go America. Awesome. The thing is, is when you accept Jesus as your Savior, he takes the chains of slavery and he breaks them open and he casts them away. However, we tend to like our sins. We tend to like our chains sometimes. They're comfortable. They're like a good lazy chair. Nice, good. We don't like to change. But Paul, writing in Galatians, he writes to the Galatians, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Why are you putting yourself back under bondage? Be free. Don't give in to sin anymore. Don't be a slave to sin. Independence Day in July 4th, 1776, they declared independence. It was a hard-fought battle. There was a war. Independence wasn't achieved until after the war. But the thing is, as Christ says, I've set you free completely. Now, it is going to be a struggle. There is going to be some issues. But you know what? I've got that covered. I've got you. I've given you the power to get through this. And so that's why we are empowered to grow spiritually. Because he has granted that power to us. But we're not just empowered to grow. We're also expected to grow. And Peter goes through this, starting in verses 5 through verse 7, and he lists out some character qualities, areas in which we are to grow. And he says this, for by, uh, see, he says this in verse 5, Now for this very reason also, because he has given by his divine power everything pertaining to life and godliness, for this reason also, applying our diligence, this is work. You've heard spiritual disciplines before, being disciplined, living a godly life. It is hard work. There are times that I'm in seminary. I read my Bible for class. I'm flipping through the pages. I wore out my old Bible because I was flipping through the pages so much. By the time I get home, having a quiet time or having, setting aside some daily time just to read God's word, to just see what God has to say, it's a chore. I felt like I've done it already. But the thing is, is we're, we're supposed to. We're, it's hard work. We are to discipline ourselves to do this stuff. Applying all diligence. Work at this. He says, then, in your faith. Faith is the beginning point. This whole list here, some people call this the ladder of faith. But it's not really. Because you don't really work on one and then work on the next one and then work on the next one. These are all qualities that need to be worked on simultaneously at the same time. And so, as my professor used as another illustration of something else, it's like a diamond, a big gym with all these different facets. And Peter holds it up and says, you know, spiritual growth. You have to work on, well, faith, first of all. And faith, excellence, knowledge, and so forth and so on. So never think, well, I'm a, I just keep failing at this one so I can't progress on. No, work on what God has given you. Some, are, some areas of this 
I'm a patient, sometimes, you know, I'm a patient person, sometimes. I work at it, sometimes. But the thing is that I have to ask myself, how am I doing in the area of brotherly kindness, love? If I'm failing at one particular area, I need to work on that area. But that doesn't mean I neglect all the others. And faith here is the idea of a commitment. It's not merely a belief, intellectually assuming, you know, in faith, my knowledge of God. I know who he is. James writes, even the demons believe, and they shudder. This faith here is a committed faith. It's a faith that is lived out. It's vibrant. It's alive. It's based in that relationship with God. And he says this, in your faith, supply. Supply, the idea of add to, but not just add to, but add to extravagantly. Moral excellence. Now, that's a familiar word. We just saw that back up there in verse 3, speaking about God's own character. God calls us to his character, to his excellence. Now, just to think, think in your own lives. How is your character? How is your excellence? Does it look like God's? You know, they used to have bracelets a while back, and sometimes you still see them. What would Jesus do? Yeah, ask it. Well, how would Jesus act? How would he think? How would he respond? What is the very character of God? Am I applying that in my own life? Are you applying it? Now, in your moral excellence, in your very character, add to it knowledge. This is a different type of knowledge than the knowledge we mentioned of Christ earlier. This is fact-based knowledge. This is knowledge that is gained from study. And as such, how do we know what pleases God? How do we know what God likes? Well, he's told us. You know, if you want to just to hear one, Micah 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. To, love, to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with him. Are you engaging in God's work? Are you listening to what he has to say? Are you seeking to grow in your knowledge of what he has said, of what pleases him? That's an area of growth, and that can be done, accomplished, at least starting point, by just taking each day and reading through God's word. Take it. Do it. Read a paragraph at a time. Read five minutes at a time. It's hard to do because we don't like doing it because it's outside of our, it's outside of our recliner. But it's a good thing to do. Now, and in your knowledge, he then adds, add self-control. Self-control here is not being controlled by your emotions. It's controlling your emotions. It's doing what is right, even when we don't want to. Even when the other options seem so much easier, seem so much better, seem more fun. Self-control is saying, you know what? God has told me what is right. I've grown in that knowledge. He's told me what is right. Now I need to discipline myself to do what is right. And it's also said in Scripture that to him who knows what is right and he does not do it, to him it is sin. So if you know what God wants you to do and you are not doing it, well, my friends, you are sinning. But, hey, I hold the mirror back up and look at myself and I know there are times that I haven't done what is right. That's the wonderful thing about Scripture. It points it out. The Holy Spirit works in us and convicts us. But he also empowers us to be self-controlled. It is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, in your self-control, perseverance. Steadfastness, patient endurance. The idea here, this was used in some cases in the ancient Greek as a military term. 
It was holding the line. It was swinging your sword, even though all of your, your brothers in arms have fallen by your side and you're still fighting on. Because the other side is advancing and your job is to hold them back. Thing is, is perseverance is enduring. It's getting through. Now, I opened up with a mention of Pastor Nadarkani in Iran. He's been in jail since 2009. He faces a death penalty. How does he get through it? How does he endure this? Why doesn't he recant his faith? Well, one, because he knows that his faith is in Christ. His relationship is with Christ. His love is for Christ. And keeping that in mind, remembering the cross of Christ will help you to get through some tough times. Now, I don't know what all you're going through. I don't know the issues that are in your lives. But I do know this. God has promised that he will be with us always. He empowers us. He lives within us. And it's that. If we remember that, it will help us to get through some really tough times. But now we move from more of an inward focus to a Godward focus. And in your perseverance, godliness. We mentioned godliness earlier. Living a life that is pleasing to God. Does your life please God? It's a good question to ask. Am I doing what is right? Am I living the way God wants me to live? Am I in his will? Well, kind of go back to knowledge. Are you making sure you know what God's will is? Does your life please him? Always think about that. After godliness, it's a switch to, in verse 7, brotherly kindness. This is the word we get our word Philadelphia from, brotherly love. Now, in ancient times, you did not treat everybody else as the same way as you treated your family. You treated your family different because it was your family against the world. But the wonderful thing happens when we come to Christ, when we place our faith in him. We become adopted kids of God. We are his adopted children. He adopts us into his family. And so, in the ancient times, when people would see this, and they're like, why are you treating that person like your brother? Wayne, why do I treat you like a brother? You're not my family. And yet, we are. Because we share the blood of Christ. And this just rocked the minds of the ancient world. What's going on here? So my question then is, how are you treating your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you treating them as if they're your family? Now, I know some families are crazy. But do you love them like they're family? Do you stick by them? Are you there for them? How are you doing in that respect? And then he ends with one last quality, perhaps the utmost, most excellent of qualities. He says love. Now, how in the world do you add, supply love? How do you work at love? Well, love is not a feeling. This word here, it's the big word agape. I'm sure you've heard that one before. All it means, though, is it's a commitment to love someone. It's a decision. It is an attitude. It's not about feelings. It's treating people the way 
God treats people. The Shema of ancient Israel, they're saying that they were required to memorize. Part of it includes, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus said, and there's a second commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who is your neighbor? He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Your neighbor is everybody. So how are you doing, dealing with love? John writes of this in 1 John. He says, without love, if you don't have love, you need to start questioning your commitment to Christ. Do you really believe? You have to have love. It's a necessary outflow of believing. Now, are there times we fail at it? Sure, we still live in the sinful flesh. We are still here in this world and we still have our own troubles. We have our lazy chairs we like to go back into. But God says, I have empowered you to do this. And I expect you to work on these things. And Peter carries this further in verse 8. He says, for if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, if you are growing spiritually, he says, these things, well, guess what? You're not going to be useless nor unfruitful in knowing Christ. The true knowledge of him. It's the same word. You say you know Christ personally. You say you've experienced him. You say you've placed your faith in him. Well, if you've done that, these things are going to show that, you know, you're going to be useful for the kingdom of God. You're going to bear fruit. Love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. The fruits of the Spirit. You will bear these fruits. You're expected to grow in these things. And then he says this. But he who lacks these qualities... Are any of these qualities lacking in you? Are there any areas in which you need to grow? He says, for he who lacks these qualities, he is blind, choosing not to see, short-sighted, choosing not to look ahead. Basically, I'm looking at the now. I don't care about tomorrow. I'm living in the day. I'm short-sighted. And then perhaps the most troublesome thing he says there, is he has forgotten his purification from his former sins. Have you forgotten what Christ did for you upon the cross? I mean, if you bring that to your mind, if you remember what Christ has done upon the cross, how can you not but want to live for him? Especially since he did it for you. He died Shed his blood for your sins, my sins, every single one of our sins. And he rose to eternal life to give us eternal life. So ask yourself that question there. You're expected to grow. Are you growing? Are you choosing to look ahead? Are you choosing to look back at what Christ has done? Or have you forgotten it? Think about these things. After this, he, Peter writes some words of encouragement. So not to be so harsh, he says, yes, you're empowered to grow, you're expected to grow. But in verse 2, he says, you know what, I'm going to encourage you in this area of growth. He says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. There's that word again. Working at it. If you're working at it, be working at these things. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. It's not really a great translation. The idea is more of prove that he has called you and chosen you. Prove that you're saved. If you're living out, faith without works is dead, James says. If, you're living out of, if your life is not living out and showing 
a difference, then you have to wonder about yourself. Examine yourself. Now, maybe you've just kind of forgotten what Christ has done. You can get right back on board. God is gracious that way. He's merciful. He loves you. He wants you to grow. He's not going to stand to condemn you if you but turn to him. Do this, prove it. And this is why he says that for as long as you practice these things, as long as you're doing this, as long as you're growing spiritually, and I want to preface this, you never stop growing. Because we grow deeper in our knowledge of God, we grow deeper in our knowledge of his word, there are still things that if you're 110, that you haven't come to know yet. There's always room to grow. Always something to work on. He says, if you practice these things, he says, you will never stumble. Now, to bring it back to what I started with, deception is the way the devil tries to stop us today. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and life abundant. And in his first letter, Peter writes that, you know, the devil is prowling about seeking someone to devour. He does that for us a lot of times by deception, by bringing in false teachings. Nah, Jesus isn't really God. Nah, God didn't really create the world. Ah, you don't need to repent. Ah, once you're saved, you're good. You don't have to work on anything. Deception is the name of the game. But Peter writes, you know what? If you're growing spiritually, if you're working on these things, you're not going to stumble. You're not going to be deceived. Now, at least for long, because if you continue in growing, you're going to realize God's going to be speaking to you. He's going to be poking at you. The Holy Spirit has a habit of messing with you. He does me all the time. So he will try to keep you in there. But then he, one last word of encouragement, he says. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Awkwardly worded. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it. He will grant you a grand entrance into his kingdom. God doesn't want you to sneak in. God doesn't want you just to get to heaven and say, yeah, I'm here. No. The words here are words for a great party. It's a victory entrance after war where you're the conquering hero, you're returning, to, you're returning to your hometown, and they throw a big parade. It's the idea of Stephen in Acts. He's giving his testimony, he's preaching, they are stoning him to death. And yet he looks up, sees the heavens open, and he says, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Well, Paul writes in Ephesians that, well, Jesus ascended and he's sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus himself stands up to welcome Stephen into the kingdom. God doesn't want you to sneak in. He wants to throw you a party. It's an awesome time. Why don't you, do you want that for yourself, I should ask? God's willing to throw you a party when the prodigal son returned. The father threw a party. God is in the business of parties. He likes it. There will be a great wedding feast at the end. And he, is, he wants to 
take joy in you. You are his child. If you have come to know him, you are his child. And he wants to give you what is best for you and what glorifies him. And he likes to show off a bit. Look at the Old Testament. One, his Shekinah glory came down upon the mountain. The people were afraid. The thing is, is God wants to throw you a party. And he wants you to grow spiritually so that he can do that. He wants you to prove your faith. To show others in the world that, yeah, there's something different about me. Yeah, I believe in Christ. I follow after him. And that's the whole idea of discipleship. Being a disciple of Christ is following him. Imitating his life, his character, his actions, his teachings. Now, as I started with, the very first step that you have to do is you have to know him. And if some of you here don't, well, we'll be glad to talk to you about that. But if you are a believer here and you're not growing in these areas, all you have to do right now is repent and say, you know what? God, help me to grow. Give me your power. You've said it. You've promised it. He keeps his promises. Help me to grow. And if you ask for him to help you grow spiritually, well, he will do so because he's a God who keeps his promises.